Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. It's the season finale of Big Little Lies on Sunday, so make sure to check out our final episode of our live after show with the Ringer's Amanda Dobbins and ESPN's Mina Kimes. You can tune in on Twitter to Big Little Live right after the episode ends. Also, this week's 2019 Open Championship marks the final major championship of the golf season. So check out Fairway Roland, where Joe House is joined by a cast of Ringer and Golf World personalities for everything you need to know heading into the weekend. You can find new episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Sean Fennessy. And I'm Amanda Dobbins. And this is The Big Picture, a conversation show about the circle of life. We are here to talk about the 2019 film, The Lion King, which is also a 1994 film called The Lion King. This is a photorealistic, digitally animated, reimagining, though not quite so creatively reimagined version of The Lion King, which is, of course, one of the canonical Disney new golden age classics that has been remade in this series of remakes And boy, there are a lot of things to say about this film. There are not a lot of things to say about the plot of this film because the plot is exactly the same as the original. Yes. For the most part. But Amanda, let's start this conversation by talking about 1994. Wow. Take take me back to Amanda Dobbins in 1994, entering a movie theater and experiencing The Lion King. So I would have been nine years old at the time of the release. And... I'm trying to remember, I don't remember this actual theater day experience because, again, I was nine. I don't know. What are you going to say? Children are children. Uh, But I have probably seen this movie after the fact as much as any other Disney movie that I've seen. And I think the soundtrack definitely became a part of my life. We have spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about how much I love Elton John. And I think this was my entryway into Elton John. Ah. So I... The music and those opening notes uh, make me emotional every single time. And I think, I'm trying to remember, we were talking, I went to, they were re-released, The Lion King, the 1994 Lion King, about 10 years. And I actually went to see that in theaters, which is strange. It's not something I normally do. I don't go in for that type of nostalgia usually. But this became the central Disney text for me and for a lot of other um, people of my generation, I think because it's not about a princess. It's not about a boy either. I mean, obviously, there are male and female lions, but it's just about animals. I think it's about more than just a love story, which is great. It brings in a larger audience. And I think probably both in terms of story and musical achievement, I I think it's the peak of the new golden era of Disney. I would agree with you. And I think that that has evolved over time. This, this movie was obviously a massive box office success. It was later adapted by Julie Taymor into a very successful Broadway adaptation. This new version is directed by Jon Favreau, who is one of the, I think, one of the signature blockbuster filmmakers of his era. So you know that this is meaningful. The movie, the original movie was nominated for two Academy Awards, which actually feels quite low in retrospect. This is before there was a Best Animated Feature category. It was nominated for Best Original Score and Best Original Song for Can You Feel the Love Tonight? I definitely saw The Lion King three or four times in the movie theater. Really? And I was, I think I was 11 when the film was released. So maybe a little old, but I also, I think I was very, I think Aladdin ensnared me and I got very excited about people like Robin Williams. And so the Timon and Pumbaa 
aspect of the movie mm-hmm. I found very appealing. I was not quite aware of the Shakespearean Hamlet intonations or the biblical Joseph and Moses story. Right. But at the same time, I think that this movie is pitched a little older than, say, Aladdin for that reason, because there are those generational and canonical overtones in it. It's about fathers and sons and family and yes. what we leave behind and responsibility and larger issues. There's n- There are no princesses in this movie, which I think is one of the other things, too, that is significantly different from so many of the, the the classic canonical Disney movies that we talk about. there, This isn't Cinderella. This isn't Sleeping Beauty. This isn't even Aladdin in that respect. It's a very male movie. All of the main characters are very male. And I wonder if as a kid, I, I was responding to that unconsciously somehow. I'm sure you were. I think it is also somehow, it is very male, but somehow feels like less masculine than a lot of the yeah, other like I, I have been handed a lot of like male focus pop culture mm-hmm. throughout my life and especially as a kid and I do think that uh, this opened it up a little bit more and it is also there are female characters Nala is not as developed as you might like but I mean, again at the end of the day they're lions you know they're lions you can see <laughs> yourself it, 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 if you're gonna see yourself in an animal you're gonna see yourself in an animal there's kind of less gender stuff to work with I'm glad we agree that this is the peak of the Disney neo golden era The decision to remake this movie is complex. On the one hand, if you listen to our episode about Aladdin, you know that there is really one reason why they're doing this, which is for money. These movies are making a lot of money, these live-action remakes. Some of them are more successful than others. I think, you know, Dumbo came out earlier this year and has already been forgotten. That was not very successful, at least from a financial perspective. I think creatively, there's kind of some cool things in Dumbo happening. It's Tim Burton applying his Tim Burtonness to the mm-hmm. Disney world, which is kind of a kick unto itself. And we may look back on that in 10 years and be like, oh, that was interesting. I found Beauty and the Beast, for example, to be utterly dull and pointless. And I thought Aladdin was strange mm-hmm. and a little bit unnerving and a little bit sexual. And <laughs> why, why am I the only person who's like, let the genie have a sex life? Why not? I, he wants just, to be a human. That's part of being a human. I, uh, Let's make this a sex-positive podcast, okay? okay? okay. Thank you. Um, the Lion King is different from those movies. Those movies star— No sex in this movie. There's there's no sex in this movie. Um, and there's no humans in this movie at all. And all of those other movies, all of these other live-action remakes, Cinderella, Kenneth Branagh's Cinderella, stars a human being, Lily James. The Lion King is completely digitally animated. Mm-hmm. And there are some brilliant people, I think— Chief among them, Rob Legato, who is the sort of digital overseer of this whole film, the person who has conceived a lot of this and who has worked on a great many films with Steven Spielberg and Martin Scorsese and is widely considered one of the premier digital architects of the modern era of movies. But there's something, you know, the the phrase the uncanny valley has been used frequently in in aggressive reviews of this movie Mm -hmm. because it is set in a valley and there's something unnerving about looking at real-life, photorealistic-ish lions Mm -hmm. talking and singing and nuzzling and conquering. Mm -hmm. The actual physical manifestation of this movie, how did you feel about it? I think I'm the only person who is really pro. Honestly, it's like a nature documentary with Elton John songs. I'm not mad. I do think I turned to you within 10 minutes of this movie starting and was like, we should be high right now, which (laughs) we shouldn't have been because it was a professional experience in the middle of the day and it's important to have boundaries. A lot of kids in that theater. Yes, exactly. So we made the right and responsible decision. But 
in terms of the attitude with which I would enjoy seeing this movie, I thought it looked amazing. And I I really do think that as a technical and visual achievement, it's beautiful. And there and I want to say two things about that. One is in terms of the its its competition and comparing it with all of the other effects that we have seen, I find it so strange that people don't seem to like this because we have sat through so much true visual garbage in the last two, three, five years. So many blockbuster movies that we see look like trash and they're garbled and there's so much CGI. And that's, I mean, that is certainly true, I think, of superhero movies, which I just have stopped taking into account visually because I've just given up. But also... A lot of, now that we're using more CGI in action movies and honestly just for location stuff, so much stuff looks really bad all the time. And you can tell that it's fake. And I thought that this looked beautiful. I I agree with you to an extent. I think that if you look at a lot of the early reviews of the film, what you'll see is this kind of phrasing. The Lion King is an extraordinary breakthrough, comma, but. And the but is, this is creatively a dead end. And I think that your what what your feelings are, and I I I remember this kind of conversation around Avatar. It feels very similar to the one that you're having around Avatar, which is that to see Avatar in theaters. I don't know if you saw it in theaters. I assume you did. I did. Okay, you like most humans saw it in theaters. There was a blizzard in New York, and I'd been in my house for two days, and I was like, I gotta go. Right. So Avatar, I remember being completely blown away. I, I it was a very similar situation where I was not really thinking terribly hard about the world that James Cameron had created, but I was inside of the world. And it's the sort of movie that when you watch it on television does not stand up in quite the same way, but it it has this ability to surround you and envelop you in what it has created, which is from whole cloth. The Lion, this Lion King, I think is somewhat similar. The problem is we know where the movie's going the whole time. And so if you are not stoned and you can't fully just appreciate the digital presentation, it feels like you're on a road to nowhere. and. I like the I like the story of the Lion King a lot. And there are things about this version of the Lion King that I think are interesting and well done. But I couldn't just help but feel like they stretched out something that I didn't need. This movie's 30 minutes longer than the original film. I would say that the voice performances, some of which are good, most of which are less good than the original, which is not what you want. True. It, they made an interesting choice to to spend all of, not an interesting choice, but I understand how it happens. They spend all of their time on the visuals um, and it looks spectacular and they did not update this script. And, like they, they seem to have extended the story a little. And I think they spent that a lot of extra time is the hyena scene and the chase scenes, which I think are pretty scary. Yes. And I'm curious to see how kids handle them. It's going to be tough for four-year-olds they to were see a li- I mean, that was a little scary in the cartoon. Yeah. Because, I mean, and that's dealing with parent death and, and real serious stuff. But this was genuinely frightening um, and immersive. And so I, I thought that was a great achievement. And I think that's where the time goes. But they didn't update the actual scripts. Like, there are still lines being said that were written for a children's cartoon version of these people. And there is a difference between a, a, a what is the non-pejorative way of saying a children's cartoon? How would you animated, the animated feature? Well, but I'm trying to distinguish kind of the 1994 animation from the new animation. Well, that is something that I want to talk about a little right. bit later in this show. But but there is a difference in presentation and style, and it's two different types of art, and they both require skill and artistry. But 
you expect different things to come out of the mouths of the 1994 Lion and the photorealistic 2019 Lion. No doubt. The original film, if you go back and rewatch it, and last week on the internet, there was a Twitter account that very um, predictably did a side-by-side of the 94 mm-hmm. version of The Lion King. I, um, I believe it was the performance of Akuna Matata. I can't recall specifically which song it was. I think it was Akuna Matata. And then the new version of Akuna Matata. And what you see in the animated version is this almost Busby Berkeley-esque musical execution. The characters are like whirling dervishes. They're doing flips. They're swinging from vines. They're they're not just walking through the jungle. And in the new Akuna Matata, it's just a warthog and a meerkat and a lion walking mm-hmm. and singing. And that is just less visually dynamic. And it's more difficult to do this sort of photorealistic digital animation that they've done. But it's not as fun. And the original Lion King is really fun. And there's something intellectually absent from this in a way. It's like it, in an attempt to be more real, they have lost sight of what was ultimately truly great about the movie, I think. That is that is where my head is. I th- I think that's true. I don't think that this movie, like, it doesn't, to borrow a sports metaphor that I barely understand, like, carry the ball across the goal line, if you will. Well done. That's, the, that's the sport of football. Yes, right. They don't, they don't quite get there. Um, but I... I also watched that clip of the side-by-side, and my first thought was, wow, I Nine was really young, and I was a child when I saw this movie, and this is a movie, it is, it does have childlike wonder. And what I responded to in this new Lion King, and you and I had this conversation after we saw it, is just, it's like, it's a different type of imagination. I mean, here's my thing. What if lions could talk? That would be cool as shit if, like, lions could actually talk and you could just watch them have a an actual Shakespearean drama. And it's not David Attenborough narrating it. It's them actually talking. And it looked as—and it was real life, and it looked as beautiful, and it was shot as beautifully as this is. That is more exciting to—that type of imagination is more exciting to me than total made-up worlds and total uh, out-of-nothing— fantasy things i just the the things where you're just spinning reality and suddenly it's like these majestic creatures could speak to you i i find that really exciting and i liked that approach to this movie i don't think that they leaned into it fully enough i'm going to ask you an unanswerable question Mm -hmm. let's say that there was a movie in 2019 called the lion king Mm -hmm. that was written designed executed in exactly the same way but the 1994 version of the lion king did not exist and this was the first time you were seeing this movie mm-hmm. and this story. Do you think you would like it? Well. Because you typically do not like, quote unquote, animated films. Right. I I don't like things that are for children because I'm a grown up. Um, and I know that that's like really hard for you to hear. It's just unnecessarily harsh. <laughs> it's just, it's just. Well, but you asked me an unanswerable question and I'm trying to be very honest. Okay. If it, If I could sense, and this movie is still for children. Mm-hmm. You know, and so much of this stuff where they didn't make it, they made it pretty scary, but then there's still kind of the goofy numbers and they don't explore a lot of, I had a lot of questions. Number one, there's no sex. I had a lot of questions about like the demographics of a lion pride. Yes. You know, there you are, did. there are larger political and issues that they kind of leave on the table because you got to just like have a, a little lion singing a song about, you know, God, I, I just can't wait to be king. Yes, and which I, by the way, have memorized, and I just forgot the title right there. Great song. No one's saying do this. Now when I said that, no I... one's saying be there. 
Damn it! What? Noah says, stop that! What you don't Noah realize? says, see here! Now see here! These songs are awesome. Yeah, the songs are great. Elton John's great. So... I think that I would watch this and I would sense the thing that I, I I do not think that this movie is maybe even a total success and I don't think it's perfect and I would sense that it's just not being marketed to me and it they didn't lean into the things that I think are interesting enough about it. You know what's complicated though? This movie is for you. It's it, This movie is meant for everyone. The whole purpose of this movie is to get everyone to see it mm-hmm. and I fully expect it to be very successful. Right. I it, think in that sense, it will work. It is one of the movie events of the year because I think Disney is is plying not just the the children's audience, but the adult the adults who once were children's audience. Yeah, of course. And so that means basically anybody from 3 to 40, maybe even 3 to 50, should be interested in this movie for that reason. And because one, it taps a nostalgia bone. Two, it's an, it's an event movie. It's as, as big an event movie as an Avengers movie is. Mm-hmm. And... So as adults, we kind of have to take it seriously. I mean, I, I I wouldn't be doing this if if I didn't think it it right. merited that level of conversation. Right. And I am taking it seriously, but I was answering the question of if the 1994 didn't exist, would right. I see this? And if the 1994 didn't exist, then this movie being targeted to me would not exist in the same way because it wouldn't be playing on my nostalgia. I'm going to read the premise of the plot to you. Okay. okay. Because I think one thing that tends to happen with nostalgia content is we forget what these things are actually about. And we just, we our, my mind goes to Akuna Matata. You know, or my mm-hmm. mind goes to Whoopi Goldberg doing one of the voices of the That's hyenas. so funny. My mind goes to the circle of life. Okay. And the drama and the generational power of this movie. I, I go to the adult version. I I do. I remember the kind of larger picture themes of it, which I, is not me stunting on you. It's just me sharing how I, it's, how it's, I feel. It's perfectly fine. Every person yeah. has the right to be different in this world. Okay. Here's the premise of the movie. In the African savannah, the young lion Simba idolizes his father Mufasa and longs to succeed him as king of the Pride Lands. Before this can happen, his jealous uncle Scar initiates a coup, which results in Mufasa's death and Simba's exile. Simba grows up in the company of Timon and Pumbaa, a meerkat and warthog pair with a carefree lifestyle. As tensions rise, he is drawn back into a battle with Scar by the friends from his past life. One thing that I was surprised by when I was rewatching this movie is kind of how thin the story is. <laughs> Which seems ridiculous because it's Hamlet, but also... I, I will not take that from a person who talks about how important superheroes are, like, every week on the podcast. Oh, my Lord, no! Well, honestly, though, the the arc of the Simba character is a bit strange to me because a whole period of his life happens that they don't show us. Basically, yeah. Simba growing a mane. It's called the Bible. <laughs> what does that mean? It's like the, in the desert. Come on. It's, like, literally a reference to... <laughs> Yes, okay. certainly. But how Simba evolved from feckless child to spirited and worthy king happens off screen. And it's because Timon and Pumbaa teach him how to eat bugs. That is the story of how Simba becomes a man. And I don't, I, I gotta say, I didn't get it. <laughs> I don't understand how Simba became the king. <laughs> Can I just say something? Scar, maybe no, Scar no, should no, be the hold king. Hold on, hold on. Literally, you went to the bathroom during the scene in which Simba and Rafiki go to the watering hole and he looks in the water and he sees the reflection of his father and he's like, your father lives on in you and Simba has the realization that we are the continuation of our parents and that he needs to honor his family and what was learned in him and get his shit together. That's not my father. It's just my reflection. No. Look hard. 
see, he lives in you. That, like, honestly, it wasn't there because you went to the bathroom. Here's what You're we, my friend, but that's what happened. Here's what we call that. Okay. That's movie bullshit. I have talked about movie bullshit on this podcast and on the rewatchables. That is where we take a scene and we externalize internal feeling. And great films show us them through action. They don't show us them through conversation. And a conversation between Rafiki and Simba in which he sees the reflection in a pool of his father is movie bullshit. So I may not have seen that scene in the new Lion King, but I did see that scene in the original Lion King. I'm very aware. I know your skin is melting off your face right now, but (laughs) is the Lion King story good is a conversation that I feel is necessary. I am so mad at you right now. Because you know what I'm doing right now? Like, I I honestly wish I had gone through and I tallied up the amount of hours that I in my life have spent talking to you about fucking MacGuffins and other planets and, like, aliens I've never heard of. Those movies are good. And every single time it's like, oh, yeah, daddy issues, but he got through it. It's the exact same thing. This is the one story that all of you, and by you, I mean men, tell. And you're telling me that this, like, beautiful, primal story doesn't work. But the freaking MCU is literature. I will honestly walk out of this podcast studio. Honestly, we're not uh, we're not comparing the two. Well, I think we should. I no, I don't think I, so. No, I, I think that we should a little bit in terms of uh, event movies and okay. Well, that, but that's franchises. different. No, because it's I have just been interested in watching all of these people who have sat and been like, oh my god, and it's another super superhero movie, and they did it, and look what Marvel and Disney figured mm-hmm. out. Um, Don't conflate the internet with me. Well, but it just, it's interesting when people decide to get mad about cynical money grabbing uh, movie making. That's all. I get that. And I feel like this is cynical and and money grabbing for Mm -hmm. sure and is not perfect. But I have also seen a lot of movies that fit into that rubric and they place emphasis on different things and they... I think this movie looks a lot better mm-hmm. and is a lot and has better music and is more accessible in the story than a lot of the kind of mumbo jumbo space stuff mm-hmm. that seems to fill out and possibly be the the action that you're discussing um, that fills out what are considered successful blockbusters. I mean, I think this is kind of the crisis of this movie that we were alluding to earlier about the eventizing of movies and things. something that we talk about on the show yeah. all the time, which is that these are really the only kinds of movies that can be successful. So it feels essential to compare them to one another mm-hmm. and because they are the, the only things that feel meaningful. And I get that. I get that impulse. And I, I, I'm certainly aware of your frustration mm-hmm. with how uh, the youthful masculine ideal has overtaken the box office. I get it. I yeah. know you're annoyed by it. Um, I'm not seeing it from the same perspective, though, because I'm not trying to say, well, Guardians does this so much better than The Lion King. I don't care about that. I I think that there are some MCU movies that are very good and and are very thematically coherent. I'm thinking more in in the great history of film. Okay. Because I think if we say that The Lion King is one of the great animated features of all time, and this this the way that this story is constructed is is really powerful and is generational. I think we can look at it in the same way we would look at Gone with the Wind or Citizen Kane or It Happened One Night or it ha- or The Godfather or any of mm-hmm. these other. I think it's worthwhile to have the conversation about does it hold up in the same way. Now, 
it's not totally fair to compare The Godfather to The Lion King because of what you're saying, which is this movie is designed for children. However, right. Snow White was designed for children, and it was one of the most radical things that ever happened in movie making. And it, it, it changed movies forever. And it cemented Walt Disney as an iconic creative person in our American history. So, sure, the, the Godfather may be deeper, but that doesn't necessarily make it more meaningful. And so I'm trying to think about it in, in that, on that plane, not just in, hey, man, and the Wasp is so stupid because it's about a guy and his dad, and he has a problem with his dad, and he's got to figure it out. It's not just about that. You hear what I'm saying? I do, sort of, but I just... We're in a machine, and we talk about the machine all the time. And it's hard to talk about this movie without talking about the machine. And I think it's hard to talk about any blockbuster at this point without talking about the machine that is being created. Because all of these movies are about... You can you can see the structural pieces, and you can see we're putting this in this movie, so you'll come back for this movie. And we're doing this, so you'll come back to this. You can, If you want to, you can see yourself being manipulated... In real time, which all movies manipulate, every movie that you just mentioned manipulated and gets people into the theaters. And by the way, a movie that no one sees is a failure, just as much as a movie that doesn't have like great character exposition. So, I I just I find it so interesting because there has been real vitriol for this movie and people just being like, "This is useless," and. I just think it's because we're rewarding one type of usefulness at the box office and not another. And I found some things in, tr- in this movie that spoke to me in a way that, like, the quote-unquote usefulness of other, like, tradition, you know, quote, successful blockbuster movies don't speak to me. A hospital is useful. Movies are not useful. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I think we have, to yeah. think, we have to think practically about that. I, you're completely right that the, the critical reaction that we were feeling there's a lot of people trying to get attention to ha- with stormy opinions, you know, because I, everyone knows that there's a huge level of interest in this film. Mm-hmm. And so I think if you're writing a review of this film, you know you'll have a bigger audience. And the stormier response, the more exciting it will be. Now, people may believe that this is circling the drain of creativity in the broken 21st century. Right. And in some ways, I, I get it. I get why people feel that way. And also, appeal, if people feel like they're just screaming into the void about certain things— but I'm I'm a little personally a little less interested in that. I think we can dismantle some mm-hmm. of those arguments pretty effectively. We know we know this landscape very well at this point. Yeah. The thing I'm interested in is more like this movie itself. Is this movie good? And right. what makes it good or not well, good? Well, but even within you and I walked out of the theater, we had a lovely walk back to the to our office and LA, what a town. It was finally summer. Thank you, Los Angeles. And we were talking about the visuals. And I was just way more excited about them mm-hmm. than you were, which is a bizarre thing for me to say because, like, I, you know, I don't care about technical anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I don't really love thinking about the work or, like, wow, you know, what an achievement is, like, the the first sign that, you know, nothing else happened. But we were talking about the different types of effects and really the different types of imagination and visual imagination that you and I respond to in movies. And it's just very different because you you like completely new worlds. You are excited to see something that has never been seen and has no reference. And it, well, it does have a reference. It's usually comic booky, but that also means something to you and you're very well versed in that. And so that just visual experience is more, is exciting to you. And it means nothing to me. And I thought this was pretty transcendent. So I think there's two challenges for me when it comes to that. Yeah. 
And I, I, I completely respect what you're saying. And I think in a lot of ways you're right. But one, we have nature documentaries and they are incredible. The nature documentaries of the 21st century are mind-blowing. And the David Attenborough stuff that you're talking about mm-hmm. is some of the, the best documentary filmmaking that we have. And it's not only good from a visual perspective, which is so precise and so labored over. It takes days, weeks, months to capture a caterpillar crawling up a tree in the Amazon forest. Excuse me, in the Amazon jungle. So you have that already. Mm-hmm. And then in addition to that, there are real artisans that are working on this movie whose work we don't fully understand yet. And part of, for me, I like to understand how things happen. So there, there are great documentaries about the, how, how cinematographers work and how they shoot and how they mm-hmm. light and how they film things. There are great documentaries about screenwriters, great documentaries about actors and how they apply their craft. There are way too many documentaries about directors and what it means to be a director. There's never been a definitive document of how does a digital artist work so how does Rob Legato collaborate with John Favreau, the director, and Caleb Deschanel, the, the, the cinematographer of this movie, to, to actually make what they're making? I don't actually know. I, I have no understanding. Now, I could certainly read a book and find out. And I, I've watched my handful of featurettes over the years that show me how these things are animated. Mm-hmm. But this definitive definition, this, 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 this visualization, this clarification right. of how a movie like this comes to be, I think would help a lot. Well, but I also think that that's just an opinion. You love process. You like to, you're the guy who literally likes to know everything and you have to understand how it all works. And I actually, I mean, I am often that way, but in this case, I'm experiencing a sense of wonder, both in, wow, look at, you know, look at what they did, which I do think that this movie pulls off, at least visually. And I think that that is the result of a lot of talent from a lot of people. But also imagination. I agree with you about the David Attenborough documentaries, but I keep going back to like, yo, what if a lion could talk? That would be like, I hate pets. I hate all of this. I, it's, it's so interesting to me that I'm the one just sitting there being like, that That would be amazing. Imagine what, I, you know, and that's, I guess that's me getting in touch with my childlike wonder, but that is just how I respond to it. And for some reason, that to me is more exciting than like, imagine if there was a, you know, space planet where there was a, I don't even know. I can't tell you the plot of the thing. That's okay. You don't have to describe Star Wars to compare it to The Lion King. No, not Star Wars. I think Star Wars is nice. It's also like basically grounded in the exact same text that these, that The Lion King is. So. It's true. Fathers and sons. That is the, that is the archway through that we walk through. Yes. At at the, at the Cineplex. Mm -hmm. Should we talk about the voice actors? Yeah, because that that doesn't work. Well, there are a few. Some of them are good and some of them are not good. And how do we how do we parse that? Now, I think that the voice performances in the original are very fun and spirited. I can't say I can remember all of the people who appeared as voices. The people who jump out to me are, of course, James Earl Jones as Mufasa, who recurs here Mm -hmm. and, and recreates the performance note for note. Yes. I would not say there's much that's different about that. I think everyone else here is new. And Let's just go through each person. Okay. We get two Simbas. Okay. The the Simba of note. J.D. McCrary is the the young Simba. I believe J.D. McCrary is um, the young actor who appeared in Little. I thought it was the young actor who appeared in Us, but it's not. Um, but Donald Glover plays older Simba. Okay. What would you think of Donald Glover? You're a Donald Glover fan. I am. Though I, we were talking about this. Donald Glover has now been the butt of a joke in two major 
studio releases this year, both Men in Black International, and I like, honestly can't remember the other one. Maybe it was The Hustle, which I saw and you didn't, which is just the life cycle of these things is really fascinating. Anyway, I did not think that he was great. He, one thing I want to say is that even in the 1994 version, adult Simba and adult Nala are lame underwritten characters. Mm. Because, again, when you're a child, you don't care about grownups. You know, and you don't really have a nuanced understanding of grownups and they you really need that looking in the river and having the movie explain to you what grownups think. It is a, a, you know, a trainer's wheel guide to Shakespeare and all of these motivations. But so there's not a lot to work with. And once again, they made the decision to not update the script at all. It's almost like my point about how the story might not be good is real. Well, I don't think it's the story. You can talk about the script. These, uh, you're just, you're not going to discount Shakespeare in the Bible. I just I'm not on my watch. I'm, I'm not, not going to let you. I'm do just that. discounting the Lion King. Okay. Uh, I th- I thought Billy Eichner and Seth Rogen were fantastic. Mm-hmm. Probably the best part of the movie. Delightful. And it's great to see Billy Eichner shining in 2019. Particularly Billy Eichner, I, he just crushed it. Did you see the video of Billy Eichner preparing to meet Meghan Markle and Prince Harry? Yeah, I did. Which was just because they're all in a lineup and he's just like very nervously asking Seth Rogen, what should I say? Oh, he didn't say this. I've never related to a video more in my life. Do you think Billy Eichner and Seth Rogen are, are authentic friends? I hope so. They do have chemistry have in this, chemistry. which is not something that you can say of most anyone else in this movie. I had no idea Billy Eichner could sing. I had a very exciting moment when I hadn't thought this through. And of course, as soon as Can You Feel the Love Tonight starts, I was like, oh my God, Billy gets Can You Feel the Love Tonight. And it turns out that he did not get all of Can You Feel the Love Tonight, but he did get the first Can You Feel the Love Tonight. You got to count that as a win. I think the whole movie is a huge win for I him. I agree. Uh, he is the least famous of all of the major characters doing voice work in this film. And I think he kind of walks away with the movie. Mm -hmm. Seth Rogen is good as Pumbaa. It's notable that Pumbaa is a significantly more flatulent character now that Seth Rogen is in the mix. I feel like that also is for all the six-year-olds out there. I want to talk a little bit about Scar. I think Scar is one of the great villains in the history of Disney movies. Mm -hmm. And he is voiced in the original by Jeremy Irons. Is that right? Yes. Life's not fair, is it? You see, I, well, I shall never be king. (laughs) And you shall never see the light of another day. (laughs) And you. Jeremy Irons. Icon. One of the great voices. Holy Christ. Uh, And his performance as Scar is iconic. And Chuatel Ejiofor is the new Scar. When I heard his voice in the trailer, my skin rippled. I was so sad. Life's not fair. Is it, my little friend? I think he was a little bit better than I expected. There's something not quite melancholy enough, not quite dastardly enough about what he's doing in this movie. Does that make sense? I feel like there's something very dignified about Chiwetel. Okay. And Jeremy Irons um, made his name on likable rapscallions, you know, Reversal of Fortune, that kind of character. right. That scar is hemming it up a little. Yeah. There is that Disney cartoon tradition of, you know, Ursula. Same thing. Well, Angelfish, the solution to your problem is simple. All of them being appealing. The only way to get what you want is to become a human yourself. Everything will be fine. Everything will be fine. The diamond here. Whatever you need. I thought I smelled a rat. Meg. Speak of the devil. 
Meg, my little flower, my little bird, my little nut, Meg. Which I, I, you know, again, I wonder if it's also trying to soften it for children. I thought Chotella G4 was pretty good in this. I have to be honest. I thought he was more, again, I thought it was maybe one of the only performances that actually did adapt to the visual thing. If he were doing full, almost camp Jeremy Irons, and then it was like that raggedy, real lion I'm not, that wouldn't have fit for me. You just hit on the word that I'm, I've been searching for. Yeah. Camp. Mm-hmm. This movie is missing a little bit of camp. Only Billy Eichner at times is getting there. Yes. And I think that that is fundamental to some of the most exciting animated movies. Is there is a campy quality to them mm-hmm. because you have to oversell, especially in the voice acting. Right. Donald Glover is not going for camp at all. He's, it's very underplayed, I would say. Yeah. I'm not sure what he's going for, which is a problem i noticed you, yeah i noticed you skipped beyonce we're getting there okay um i thought john oliver john oliver was fine as zazu mm-hmm. he's it, he, he's basically playing john, john oliver. oliver he's playing doing right. late you know the, his his hbo show mm-hmm. but as zazu which is fine um john connie as rafiki fine yeah james earl jones we mentioned mm-hmm. alfred woodard as sarabi great doesn't get a lot to do no. but it's great again i just would Really love. There was a great. There was a National Geographic piece that was explaining some aspects of how the lion dynamics and the Lion King are incorrect. I would like to know why there's there's only one. There are only two dudes, two lions, and a lot of women, and they don't do anything anyway. I don't have any answers. I don't know. I, know. I don't know okay. enough about lions. Yeah. I think Florence Kasumba, Keegan Michael Key, and Eric Andre portray Shenzi, Kamari, and Azizi, the hyenas. Mm-hmm. Pretty good. Yeah. Beyonce Knowles Carter as Nala. <laughs> what do you think of Beyonce? I'm not afraid to say it. It's not a good performance. It's not good. It's not a good performance. It's it's caps lock acting. Yep. She's just yelling every <laughs> single sentence. And Simba, no, we must not do this. We must go over here. And there, Simba. Are, there are a couple of moments that are literally just come on lions. Let's get in formation, and she's doing that actual voice. And I understand wanting to pull that reference in because at that moment the movie needs the energy. But no, it reminded me of the End Game sequence where all the female superheroes united. Yes, uh, which you know, it's, which I did not like. It's not what you want. Yeah, it's really not what you want. It's just it did it hasn't worked. No, I I think that Beyonce is. It doesn't work at all in this setting, which is at least visually supposed to be naturalistic. And I think we've kind of identified that the tension here is between the naturalistic visuals and the childlike and also like occasionally campy aspects of the script. So I don't think it's a good fit for her. And I think she she is the definition of of performance as greatness. Beyonce shows up and she is putting on the greatest show for you and you are aware of of the performance of the staging of her assuming a character that is part of what makes her great as a musician and as a performer on the on the stage it doesn't work when she's trying to play a lion who can talk <laughs> because you're aware of the you're aware of the 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 artifice of it and she's here for the artifice she's here to appear at the premiere she's here to sing a song She's here to sell the movie in an even bigger mm-hmm. way. This makes it even more of an international event. And in that respect, I get it. I, I don't, I don't certainly don't begrudge Beyonce. I don't begrudge Disney for making this choice. It's just creatively, she just can't do it. It's like, it's okay. She can do literally everything else. She's good sure. at almost everything else. I think that's true. And unfortunately, 
saying words is not yeah. the thing that she does well. I don't think the original 1994 performance, which is by Moira Kelly of... Um, I love Moira Kelly. Cutting Edge fame. Oh, my God. God bless. What an icon. Right. But it's the same thing. Not where great. It's not great. Yeah. And the Matthew Broderick performance, I had forgotten that it was Matthew Broderick, which is my verdict on 1994 Old Simba. It, this movie's not about old and old and old Simba and old Nala. It's just, it's not interested in that. There were some 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 legendary folks in the 90, 1994 cast, though. Okay. Nathan Lane. Sure. One of the greats. And, and Eichner had a, had a heavy burden to pick up from Nathan Lane, and he yes. does so admirably. Robert Giel was Rafiki, mm-hmm. the late great. Rowan Atkinson, Mr. Bean was Zazu. I don't think I knew that. I don't think I did either. And we mentioned Jeremy Irons and, of course, James Earl Jones. So, you know, it. I don't think that, I just don't, think that a lot of the voice acting works and that's part of what kept me from admiring the movie as much as I'd like to. I agree with that. I again, I don't think that they developed it to go along with the their focus was on the technical. What about the music? Mhm. A slower tempo. Why mm-hmm. why was it slower? I guess I because know. lions walk at that speed. I needed it to be a little I I think that's where the rest of the extra minutes came from is that it was just a little slow. I guess the key songs in this movie mm-hmm. are Circle of Life, mm-hmm. I Just Can't Wait to Be King, Be Prepared, Underrated Scar Jam. Yes, our teeth and ambitions are bad. Be prepared. Scar Jam? Sure, yeah. Okay. Akuna Matata. Yeah. Can You Feel the Love Tonight? Mm-hmm. I think that's it, right? That's it. I mean, that's five. That's... Five classics. What was your favorite of the new ones? Of the new songs? Mm-hmm. I don't bring new songs into this. I, I have not heard the full new Beyonce song. It was just her saying spirit a lot in the movie <laughs> while running across some beautiful vistas, which, I mean, not mad. I can't evaluate it until I've heard the whole thing. And then there is a new credit song, though, with Elton John singing. I believe it's called Never Too Late. Great. Shout out to Elton and his victory tour. I'm loving that. Here's my thing. Here's my thing. Elton has so much money. It's outrageous. He deserves it. Okay. What a what a talented and what a talented musician and an important person to me. My thing is, Circle of Life is possibly the greatest Disney song ever written, or one of them. It's definitely the greatest opening song. And in terms of the role that it plays in the movie, you hear one note and you can conjure an entire movie. It brings the ent- all of the drama to you in one note. That is powerful. <coughs> and somehow... I'm right here, Amanda. <laughs> I just, I really thought I was going to get Beyonce singing The Circle of Life. Why did I go to the movie theater if I didn't get Beyonce singing The Circle of Life? On top of that, why did I go to Elton John's goodbye tour and not get Elton John singing The Circle of Life? What do I have to do as a grown adult who is saying supportive things about all of these people's output to get just one of them singing Circle of Life to me in a in a situation. That's all I want. I have such bad news for you. They don't care about you. They don't care about you at all. I know. They don't even really care about your support. No. But I think they care about my money, at least, and I gave them that. You did, but that's the thing. You're going to give them that no matter what, and they're making the creative choices they want to make. The That is the best Disney song is, a, is an interesting I don't conversation. Know if, I don't know if it is. I don't think it's the best 
Disney song, especially in terms of... Because once you say best Disney song, it has to stand on its own outside of the movie. And I think that that is the, just the most successful and evocative song in terms of what it does in communicating the themes of the movie, in soundtracking the visuals of the movie, in representing the movie, like, instantly. I mean, think of a better opening to a movie. Hmm. Definitely. I mean, it's the best opening to an animated movie. So I, I think you inevitably tell tell on yourself whenever you mm-hmm. talk about this sort of thing because it's very bound up in when you saw something. We, we were having this conversation with Mallory Rubin mm-hmm. yesterday, and she went right to a Mulan song. Let's get down to business to defeat the Huns. Which, right. I, like I said a on the show, of, I've never seen Mulan. A lot of the people under 30 here are talking about it, and I just, I refuse to engage in that. But it's it's that's a big movie for them. Sure. And I think if you are 15, maybe, let me, if you're 12, Frozen might be huge for you. For the first time in forever, I'll be dancing through the night. Don't and the songs from Frozen would be your pick. I mentioned last week on the show that Robin Hood is my favorite Disney movie. Now, Robin Hood, the songs in Robin Hood are very me. They're written by Roger Miller, and they're like country folk Americana of a certain kind in the 1960s that I like. Oodalali. Yes, that is the same thing. That is the intro to the movie. It it introduces us to the characters. It's Mm -hmm. kind of overture of the Robin Hood story. And it's just a great folk song. So for me, that's that's my thing. Mm -hmm. I think it's just a, a personality test. What your favorite Disney song is is a personality test. If you go to theringer.com right now, you can see our ranking. I would say that that ranking is a editorially curated and managed experience that I'm sure you will hold against us. It's fine. Like lists happen, you know, lists and you gotta you gotta have your own personal conviction. While I I do everything that you just said is true, and I think Circle of Life is possibly not the best out of a vacuum mm-hmm. Disney. Song. I even just I said that already. It's yeah. my favorite because I think of the what the role that it plays in the movie. I just find it really powerful, and yeah. I think everybody has a different favorite. Everybody responds to a different song based on their experiences. Part of your world from The Little Mermaid. I've got gadgets and gizmos aplenty. I've got who's it's and what's it's galore. I mean that one is hugely important, and. Uh, that's definitely up there for me. I'm trying to think, like, objectively, out of a vacuum. Colors of the Wind from Pocahontas. Have you ever heard the wolf cry to the blue corn moon? Or ask the grinning bobcat why he grinned? Can you sing with all the voices of the mountain? I like that one a lot. I also like uh, Just Around the River Bend. Mm-hmm. But I-, I do think the Elton John songs hold up. You know, you know what's tight? Be our... Be our guest. Guest. Be our guest. Put our service to the test. Tie your napkin around your neck, Sherry, and we provide the rest. So I mean, Be Our Guest is probably top five. That's a jam. And I think... I don't even like Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Mm, okay. I, you know, the, the sleeper on Beauty and the Beast is Belle, but that's like just the, with the opening song with her and the villagers, you know? But uh-huh. yeah, that's good. I like the opening songs, I guess. Yeah, I can see that. Um, but I again, I think that's like a deep cut favorite personal experience being a girl who like r- likes reading books things as opposed mm-hmm. to it being great. I do think the Ellen John songs are just pop songs. If we're going to do this 
objectively, Can You Feel the Love Tonight is a jam. I think Prince Ali is in my top three. Okay. I accept that. That's a pretty good one. I honestly thought Will Smith did a nice job with that. He didn't, but okay. It was fun. At least they had all the people out in the street. You know, he was selling it. He was aware of your feelings and was trying to deliver on those. We didn't appreciate Robin Williams in in his time. We needed to appreciate him more. Okay. I completely agree with that while also thinking that you don't appreciate Will Smith enough in his time. You're probably right about that. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about the external experience of The Lion King. Mm -hmm. One thing that's come up and we are Oscar podcasters in oh, many yeah. ways, Yeah, is where does this movie fit into the Oscar conversation? As I mentioned, the original had two. I'm sure that both Beyonce and Elton John are gunning for a Best Original Song nomination here. Obviously, the film, I'm almost certain, will be recognized in the Best Visual Effects category. Mm-hmm. And the question of whether it competes in Best Animated Feature seems to be a big talking point amongst uh, Academy circles. Mm-hmm. Because... One, you've got Disney, which also has Toy Story 4 this year, which would theoretically be competing in that category. And two, is this actually an animated movie? Or is it not? Yes, it's an animated movie, right? Don't we have a technical definition of that? I don't know. I think it puts... I, there, there's two choices here. One is, will Disney choose to run it in that category? Mm-hmm. Will it create a campaign around it and submit it officially? And two, will voters recognize it as such? Mm. Because it has a... It has a cinematographer in a way that most films like this don't. Right. And like, could Avatar have been considered an animated feature given that so much of the film is digital animation? Right. I don't, should should Dawn of the Planet of the Apes be considered an animated film? We're in this, that's an interesting creative conundrum. And I'm I'm quite curious to see what Disney does. I I think Disney will try to run this in Best Picture. I, I don't think it will. I don't think it will compete for Best Picture. I agree with that. It seems, I mean, they try to run most things in Best Picture. Not, they're not, they're not usually that aggressive. Right. You know, they're not, they're They're not aggressive generally. Exactly. In the animated category, they are. I mean, they've probably won, I would say, some upwards of 85% of the best animated features over the last 20 years Mm -hmm. since they installed the category. Pixar is often at the forefront of that, though. You know, movies like Zootopia have also won too. Like Disney, digital animation is also a huge. Um, a huge competitor in that field. This is in neither of those parts of the company. Right. This is Disney original pictures. Well, it just seems like, as you said, they aren't that aggressive generally at mm-hmm. the Oscars. Mm-hmm. So you have to assume their strategy will be go for the effects, which are, are a layup, I would say. Or well, not a layup, I but... I mean, Endgame. I mean, you know, there the is... The Rise of Skywalker. Sure. Hobbs I, and Shaw. Well, I mean, that's where you and I disagree a little. I'm just like, this is amazing. And mm-hmm. the, to me, I, to me, it, this seems like a significant technical achievement over something like Endgame. And I know how many people worked on Endgame, and I know the visual references, blah, 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 blah. But I, is what I have to say about that. That said, I'm not an Academy member or a technical expert. So I, you could be right that I, I'm sure there are as many political things in terms of whether people want to vote for this style of effects versus Endgame versus, you know, any number of other sequences. But it seems to me like the best bet would be to run it in effects and then hope you pick up some song stuff. The the last 10 years of best visual effects is very interesting. Okay, go ahead. I think it bodes well for The Lion King. Here's why. 2011, Hugo. 2012, Life of Pi. 2013, Gravity. 2014, Interstellar. 2015, Ex Machina. 2016, The Jungle Book, John Favreau's mm-hmm. film. 
2017 Blade Runner, 2049, 2018 First Man. What they like to reward here is a craftsperson's film, Mm -hmm. something a little bit more high-minded. Now, The Lion King is going to put them to a decision in an interesting way. Because it's not a comic book movie, but it's not quite Hugo or Ex Machina. It's still a Disney animated property. Mm-hmm. And so it'll, that'll be an interesting race. You know, I don't know how much time I can spend necessarily right. debating the, the merits of visual effects in certain films because of what I said earlier, which is I don't fully understand how they do what they do. Right. I think also merit probably doesn't matter. You you put your finger on the point that there this is a group of people who do this for a living and probably have very strong opinions about both the craft and the what direction they would like to see these things going in. And I I don't quite know the inner workings of that voting body, though I would love to to hear more. Does Beyonce have an Oscar? I don't she doesn't, think right? so, no. This is her this is her chance. Yes, or her first chance. I'm sure they'll give her as many more chances as Beyonce would like in order to finally win an Oscar. Do you think she should get an Oscar for this? I don't this didn't really stand out to me. Again, I haven't heard the full song, but it wasn't the most exciting part of this movie by any means. What other Oscar things do you think you can contend for? Anything? I don't really. I, I If I had to guess, they'll run it in Best Picture, but not put a lot of weight behind it because you, they don't want to eclipse Toy Story 4, I would say. And it just seems like an uphill battle in animated and doesn't really seem like it's worth it to Disney because, again, that's not why they're doing this. They're doing this to make money and to have all of us still go to the theaters and then to put it on their streaming service and have people watch it some more. And I think, so I think it'll be pretty muted at the Oscars or kind of be early in the night in the technical categories. Can we talk just a little bit about Jon Favreau? Mm -hmm. I think Jon Favreau is having one of the more fascinating Hollywood careers in the last 50 years. Absolutely. Obviously he got his start as a screenwriter and actor and kind of broke through his swingers. And he was a working actor for a time. He was a writer for a time. And then in 2001, he makes Made. That's his first film, which is sort of a continuation of Swingers. Different characters, but the same interplay with Vince Vaughn. Great performance Mm -hmm. by Diddy in Made. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you recall that. And then he makes eight movies in a row that are pretty weird. Some of them are great. Okay. Some of them are fine. Mm -hmm. Some of them are bad. Yes. His first movie after Made is Elf, which is an instant classic. Yes. Elf is, I think Elf might be my brother's favorite movie. (laughs) Love my brother. Shout out to Kyle. Then he makes a movie called Zathura colon A Space Adventure. Oh, boy. That movie didn't do that well. And then he makes Iron Man, which is arguably the most quote-unquote important movie of this century. Yes. And I think regardless of your feelings about comic book movies and all that stuff. I just agreed with you. It's very well made. It's very, very significant. Um, Set the template for what these kinds of movies were going to be. Cast Gwyneth Paltrow. Henceforth. Cast Gwyneth Paltrow. (laughs) Then he makes Iron Man 2, which is bad. Right. And then he makes Cowboys and Aliens, which I, I wonder if how far away we are from the Is Cowboys and Aliens Good movement. I thought you were going to do it right now. I, I don't think it's good, I, unfortunately. I feel like I just am so conditioned to that take from <laughs> you. Just being like, you know what? It's actually great. I mean, it's right there in the title. At some point, I appreciate the essentialism. It's Cowboys and it's Aliens. It's all the things. I have a little bit of a Damon Lindelof problem, and that's a Damon Lindelof yes. property. Yes. But you know, Harrison Ford, Daniel Craig, Olivia Wilde, Sam Rockwell— Pretty dope like cast. Pretty pretty dope cast. Then he makes Chef three years later. <laughs> he licks his wounds. He emerges post-Cowboys and Aliens, oh. and he makes a charming little film called Chef. 
which I respect. I think sometimes big time filmmakers need to go back and make a more personal piece. John Favreau obviously likes food. He likes the act of creating food. And um, I enjoy that movie. And then he comes back two years later with The Jungle Book, which has obviously changed his career yet again and has changed movies yet again. I mean, a lot of these movies are happening. And I think The Lion King in particular Mm -hmm. is happening because of the, I would say, somewhat unpredictable mega success of The Jungle Book, which made $1 billion at the box office. Then he makes The Lion King. So if you're, you're, Amanda, you're John Favreau. Okay. You've got all the money in the world. Mm -hmm. You've got all the creative capital in the world. Mm -hmm. You're at the forefront of your industry. You've made nine films. Your 10th film is what? So after The Lion King. Yeah. Gosh. Where do you go? What do you do? What do you conquer? What do you, what's a challenge? Well, I think what's interesting about the Lion King and the Jungle Book, I don't, I could be wrong. I don't get the impression that Jon Favreau made either of these movies because he was like, the most important thing to me are Disney movies and recreating them and getting to live in this world that I experienced as a child over and over again. I don't think he has a fan approach to this filmmaking. Okay. Uh, It seems like he does enjoy making money, which is great. So do I. We all do. Yeah. And it it just kind of seems like an interesting problem to be solved. And he was kind of like, sure. It it seems like the interviews that I've read even about how they made The Lion King and how it's different from how they made The Jungle Book just because of you're trying to— they were trying to recreate a live-action film— experience while just having it be totally digital. And so it's a lot of working with people and problem solving and being like, huh, I'm going to go to work today and have a a creative challenge and then I'll go home. And at the end of the day, it'll be fine because these movies are bulletproof and will make a lot of money and no one will be that mad at me. So if that's your mindset where it's just like, "Hmm, I want to have an interesting job and make a lot of money, you could do a lot of different things. I don't think it's suddenly like I'm going to make I'm not, I'm going to make another chef. What I'm really going to do is make a, a a small quiet passion project film. I assume He did that already though. He made the chef show for Netflix with Roy Choi, which is where we got that incredible Gwyneth Paltrow right. moment. But but that is different than chef. That's just I'm having a nice time. And someone again, it's like I like doing this and someone's going to give me money to do it and it'll be interesting and then I'll go home and the stakes are actually quite low. That's like this podcast for me and you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I I I would think if it's not another live action style movie, it would be something similar in terms of franchising or in terms of I don't think that this is a full passion project for him. I think it's just kind of something something to try and figure out, which is a good position to be in. Can I read a very brief quote from John Favreau's Wikipedia page? Sure. Favreau credits the role-playing game Dungeons & Dragons with giving him a, quote, really strong background in imagination, storytelling, understanding how to create tone and a sense of balance. Yeah. Maybe make the Dungeons & Dragons movie. Sure. That has long been considered so unmakeable. Say, if you're citing Dungeons and Dragons as the way that you understand all of this, that's like the most, that's the most obvious reference that you can it give. It seems fake. Right, It's exactly. so obvious it seems fake. So I fake. don't actually think that he's going to make a Dungeons and Dragons movie because I didn't really care. In May 2019, it was announced that Favreau was, will be named a Disney legend at the 2019 D23 Expo for his outstanding contributions to the Walt Disney Company. Okay. That's a, fascinating to be considered in that sort of company because he is an all-time industry guy now. Mm-hmm. And his the way he came in was the opposite. 
he was a he was a hustler. He was like a struggling stand-up comedian and writer and failing actor who made his own fortunes and made a small movie with Doug Liman and Vince Vaughn that was bought by Harvey Weinstein and released by Miramax. And it's definitely one of my favorite movies in a long time. We're doing a rewatchables about Reservoir Dogs. I remember specifically buying the scripts for Reservoir Dogs and Swingers Mm -hmm. when I was like 14. Probably honestly significantly changed my life to be that, to watch those movies over and over again. It's really weird for me to think that the guy from Swingers is the guy who makes this movie. Sean, it's happening to you too. Oh my God. May it happen to all of us. May it happen to all of us. May we all grow up and like get normal jobs and make a shitload of money. (laughs) I wish that for you, big picture listener. I wish it for everyone. Uh, Is there anything else we should say about the movie The Lion King? I'm fascinated to see what the the wider response to it is. I think it's going to make a tremendous amount of money. I think, you know, people will go see it regardless of the reviews. I think people will see it internationally. It has that international translatable appeal. I am curious whether kids like it. Mm-hmm. Though I, it seems increasingly, does that matter? I don't know. I think what we found in Aladdin was that kids do like it. We're going to have to wait to get the official ruling from Jason Gallagher's son. Yes, from Isaac. And I want to know just finally, would you recommend this movie to an adult moviegoer? Hmm. Yeah. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> Amanda says yes. We have truly Why completed not? the circle of life. Can Give you feel the love tonight? Open your heart. Please stay tuned to future episodes of The Big Picture. You know, if you're a fan of Quentin Tarantino, I suspect we'll have a lot for you on the Ringer Podcast Network in the next week or so. Next week, we're going to be breaking down the top five Quentin Tarantino movies. That'll be me, Chris Ryan, and Jason Concepcion. And then tune in later in the week for me, Amanda Dobbins, and Chris Ryan talking about a movie called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. See you then.